I feel like some of you wanted to clap after that last song, and we just started praying and didn't clap. You want to clap right now? Give God a praise offering for that. Yeah. You know, whenever you, here's a general rule of thumb. Whenever you, like, feel a Jesus thing happen, it's okay to clap, like right in the middle of something. Just interrupt Jeff's prayer, interrupt a song, interrupt. I don't know if you'll ever interrupt my preaching for a prayer, but but just feel free. Like, uh, let's, yeah, there you go. That's perfect. Yeah, that's yeah, let's let's not program or, or proper Jesus out of this thing, huh? And um, hey, we're going through this study of Acts, and in Acts chapter two, we saw in general terms how the first church was was fleshing out this new experience that they had uh, with Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and Him coming upon people, and and it, it painted a picture for us in broad terms of how the church was functioning and what they were doing. In Acts chapter 3, we get a real specific snapshot of what we saw in general terms in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 3 gives us a snapshot of what we read about in Acts 2 verse 43. And it says in Acts 2 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. It's just a real general statement. And it's as if Luke says, I gave you the broad picture. Now I want to give you some specifics. And in Acts chapter 3, he gives us some specifics of that verse, some of these wonders that were done in the context of that first church community. And so I want to jump into Acts chapter 3, especially the first 10 verses. Now let me just read it for you. And I'm going to read the 10 verses. I'll tell you where we're going. And then we're going to come back and jump into the specifics of it. You good with that? If you have a Bible brought one with you, go to Acts chapter 3. You look it up on your smart device. This is what the Bible says. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. This is a a real specific scenario and snapshot of verse 43 of chapter 2, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. So I want to unpack chapter 3 and walk us through, I think, some great faith and life lessons. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Um, when it says that they were going up to the, uh, at the time of prayer to pray, this first church was compri- comprised of Jews. There were Jews who began to understand that Jesus was the promised Messiah that had been promised to them all through the Old Testament. They didn't stop being Jews because they accepted Jesus as the leader, as their, as their Messiah. They were still Jews. It's not like they stopped becoming Jews and became Christian. That, that's a modern phenomenon, modern words, but, but, but they were still Jews. And as, as, as devout Jews, they still adhered to some of the religious practices that were practices by devout Jews. One of those practices was prayer three times a day. So they went to the temple, as was their custom, to pray three times a day. 
Now, though they were following that same custom, their perspective has changed because now their prayers rooted in Old Testament history, Old Testament scriptures, were, were now understood through the lens of the Messiah. So as they prayed these prayers rooted in the Old Testament, what they saw was the revelation through them of Jesus the Messiah. So same practices, new understanding and perspective and revelation. So they're going to pray, the Bible says, at the, at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Where they gain their practice of praying three times a day goes way back to Psalm 55, verse 17. And in Psalm 55, 17, it's a psalm of David. And he says, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out. And so from that psalm, they develop this habit of praying three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And so all they're doing is looking at, at the scriptures that they had at the time and drawing implications for their life. And it led them to these three prayer times. Devout Jews practice it. Praying the first time at nine in the morning, the second time at noon, the third time at three in the afternoon. Now, remember all this stuff. It's all going to tie together. I'm just, I'm just not giving you like useless Bible info trivia, okay? It's all going to come together. So it's during that third time at three in the afternoon, that they're going to pray. Now, a man, verse 2, crippled from birth, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg for those going into the temple courts. This man was crippled from birth. So there was some congenitive disease that made him, it was never able to stand up. Crippled from birth. We understand what that means, right? The, the legs didn't develop no muscle, really. The, the, the bones weren't strong uh, to be able to stand. Like there was nothing, there was nothing from the waist down uh, that was that was working. He was crippled from birth. Now we know from Acts four twenty two that this man was forty plus years old. It says every day he's taken to the gate called Beautiful to beg. How long has he been begging? A long time. Don't forget that. Just hold on to this info, I'm telling you, for a minute. He was born from a cripple from birth, over 40 years old. And he was put at the, at the gate called Beautiful. Do you know why they called it the gate called Beautiful? Because it was beautiful. They're not real original. They're very specific. The gate called Beautiful was the gate that separated the courtyard of the women from the courtyard of the men. In the temple complex, uh, there was the outer court, which was the court of the Gentiles that anybody could enter into. But only Jews could go into the temple proper, and there was a court of women that women could enter, but inside that was the court of men that only devout Jewish men could enter. And the thing that separated the court of the women from the court of the men was this gate called Beautiful. And the reason they called it Beautiful because it was. It was, it was 70 plus feet tall, 60 feet wide. It was huge. And it was covered in Corinthian brass that was polished so much so, the historian Josephus says of this gate beautiful, that it outshone and was more beautiful than the gates that were simply covered in gold and silver. I mean, this was the place to be. It said that when the sun hit this gate, the sun reflection off it was as bright as the sun itself, as if the sun was radiating from this gate. And so it was at this gate that this man was taken to beg. He understood what was happening. It was the most beautiful gate at the, in the temple proper. It was where the men would enter because he knew the men held the purse strings. It would do him no good to sit outside the gate of the court of women because the women didn't have any money. And so though this guy's crippled, he's pretty strategic. He's going to go where the money is. You understand what I'm saying? He's going to go to the nice places in, in Riverstone to, to, you know, in, in River Park. To, he's going to go where the money is. And so he's sitting there at the beautiful gate, this huge thing, begging. Now, most of us would say, oh, this is horrible. He's a beggar. What we think of the guys on Blackstone with signs. That's not the culture of the time. The culture of the time in this day, they had no, like, social welfare system um, their welfare system was each other. And so the Jews actually would determine who was legitimately poor and illegitimately poor. And they would not help those who were illegitimately poor. Matter of fact, if you were in huge debt, you would go hire yourself out as a bond servant or a slave to work off your debt. There was no loan forgiveness. 
They may have practiced the Jubilee year when there was, or the seventh Sabbath year at the graciousness of the owners to forgive loans, but they knew they had to work for it. Matter of fact, the New Testament says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So there was a distinction between legitimate poor and illegitimate poor. And for those who were legitimately poor or crippled like this, their welfare system was the graciousness and, 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 the, and the generosity of their people. And so to sit and beg is part of what the welfare system had created within Judaism, and it was dependent upon the graciousness of the individuals to see someone in need, and it was so much a part of their culture that they determined, they, they, they set the standard that it is to the, the good and the glory of the one who has means to give to the one who doesn't. So it was part of their own, their own faith practice, their own, like they, they wanted to give to those who didn't have, because it, 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 it showed well on them. They gained favor by it. So, so it really worked well in that culture. It, it really worked pretty well. And so he's sitting there at this gate. How long had he been there? A long time? Yeah? He's 40 years old plus? He'd been there his whole life. So he, let's just say he's 40. How old was Jesus when he died, resurrected, and ascended? Roughly 30-something years old, right? How often did Jesus go to the temple? Pretty often. He was a devout Jew. He followed the practices of prayer. How many times do you think Jesus walked by this guy and didn't do a thing? Did you ever think about that? Did that pop in your head when I was just reading you that passage? Let's not miss what the Holy Spirit might say. This guy's sitting there. Obvious need. Everybody knows. How many times did God in the flesh walk by him and do nothing? You ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way? Like God, I, I can do nothing. This is out of my control. It's out of my hands. I have no power. And if anybody can help me, it's got to be you. Why do you keep walking past me? Why do you keep walking by as if you don't see me? Anybody? If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to wrestle with this. Because everybody who is trying to live out their faith has been in these moments. Well, I'm doing all I can do. I can't do much. God, why do you keep walking past me and seemingly do nothing? I want you to understand something. And this is what we've got to come to terms with. God's timing is as important as God's will. God's timing is as important as God's will. Most people want to know, and I understand it. God, what's your will? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? We want answers. What we've neglected to understand and to allow is God to be sovereign over his timing as much as his will. Does that make sense? And we have to allow God the authority to not reveal his timing as much as he doesn't reveal his will ahead of time. See, we need to understand it like this, that sovereignty includes both activity and agenda. Now, most Christian, most church people, most, most disciples understand sovereignty according to God's activity. 
Like God is sovereign over what he does. But we don't yet understand he's also sovereign over the agenda, the timing. Now, how this looks in in my life is this. My wife has developed a wonderful system when we go on vacation of what she calls fungenda. It's not a schedule. It's not an agenda. It's a fungenda. So that everybody on our vacation with us understands when we're going to have fun, how we're going to have fun, and where we will be when we're having fun. It's our fungenda. And we understand that she is sovereign over both the activity and the agenda, the timing. When she first started practicing this God-given biblical system, it was difficult for us to appreciate it. But as many of you know, if you ever go on vacation with a large group of people and there isn't a fungenda in place ahead of time, how much time is wasted by sitting around going, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. And so my wife in her wisdom has determined this God-ordained biblical system of helping us to have fun according to a time frame that she's in control of. (laughs) Yeah, someone's clapping over that. That's from Jesus. That's Jesus. Listen, God has designed a fun agenda for your life. And it doesn't just include the activity of it. It includes the timing of it. That's why Jesus could walk by this cat for 40 years. Because it's as if God was saying, I'm doing something that is so far beyond what you can even imagine, that in the midst of your paralyzation, you're going to have to trust me. And for some of you, that's why it feels as though God keeps walking by because you've not yet submitted, and you're in distress over it because you've not yet submitted to the sovereignty of not only his activity, but his timing. And when we, when the disciple of Jesus can't get to the place of submission to his activity and his timing, we can relax. Do you understand? There's no more consternation. There's no more frustration. There's no more anxiety and angst. This was the third hour, the third prayer time. Who was walking past in this account? Who was walking past him? Peter and John. This was, was this the first time they walked past him that day? Was this the second time they walked past him that day? This was the, so these guys, the one through whom God was going to ordain his healing, had also passed by him two times. Don't start freaking out when it feels like you're being passed over. I feel like some of you thought, like, that's why God brought you to church this morning. Just let him do him. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, the beggar saw Peter and John about to enter through that gate, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Let's bring some real-life humanity to this holy book here. When he saw them about to enter, he, he asked them for money, and Peter looked straight at him. Let's just be real real quick. What's the one thing you do not do when someone's sitting outside the store that you're exiting asking for money? What's the one thing you don't do? You don't look at them, right? <laughs> I mean, let's just be real. When I know someone's going to ask me for some money, the one thing you don't do is look at them in the face. I mean, suddenly you get something on the, what was that? I had to, someone, you make sure you're past them, and then you look up and go about your day. You don't look at them, right? Because what's the implication? If I look at you in your face, and you look back at me, and we make eye contact, now there's an expectation, Right? 
And so Peter looked straight at him, as did John. He said, look at us. And so they're inviting an interaction. So the man gave them his attention, expecting what? Expecting to get something. I mean, right there, I just want to stop at that point in that scripture and say, I wonder how many times God is about to do something in front of us and we don't expect anything from him. Everything changes when we live life, when the disciple lives life with the expectation of God's activity and involvement. I wonder how many of us come to church before we ever get into this building with an expectation. I cannot wait. Like God is going to do. I wonder how many times we, we might open up our Bibles with this expectation. Oh my gosh, I can't. What in the world is he going to tell me now? I wonder how many times when we approach prayer with the expectation, not only is this God in heaven who loves me going to hear me, but this God in heaven is going to speak. Like I, the, the expectation. The man gave me his attention, expecting to get something from them. Again, I read this through my human eyes sometime, and it's just, this is horrible. Uh, what, I mean, what, what ends up happening is great, but look at how this starts. I got your attention. Peter has this guy's attention. There's this expectation now. So going, and Peter says this. Peter said, silver or gold, I don't have any. I, in my mind, in my creative mind, I just think Peter's probably, like, he, was, he probably paused for dramatic, for dramatic stress for a moment. Can you imagine I got your attention. You got my attention. This guy obviously thinks something's happening. And you lead with, hey, I ain't got no money. Can you imagine this poor beggar? He's like, then why did you ask me to look at you? Why did you get my attention? Just walk on by like everybody else. You know, I just, I don't know if it happened that way, but I like to think it happened that way. He said, I ain't got no money. What do I do have? I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. The story goes that it was Pope Innocent IV who was given a tour of the opulence of the Roman Catholic Church and all of their wealth to an early uh, church father. And Pope Innocent tells this guy, who's a follower of Jesus, see, no longer do we have to say, as Peter said, silver and gold, I have none. And this guy told him, and neither can you say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Resources without power means nothing. Church wealth, coffee shops, and fountains without the power of God mean nothing. I wonder how many times we've chased silver and gold and not the power of God. Peter said, silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you. Here's the lesson. We've got to understand this, that we cannot give what we do not possess. We cannot give what we do not possess. If you want to give the power and presence of God, you've got to possess it first. Here's the, here, here, here's the other side of that. We will give what we do possess for good or for ill. We go through life and we're one of those people that is just always stressed and always worried and always concerned and always doubt and that's what we're giving out. Guess what? That's because that's what we possess. We're always giving out fear. We're always giving out worst case scenario. We're always giving out the devil's advocate. The devil don't need no advocate. The reason we're giving that out is because that's what we possess. The only way you give out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, because that's the fruit of the Spirit. You've got to possess that first. Does this make sense? Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. 
Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Peter said, get up and walk. It would have been easy for Peter at that point to say, if you can't, that's on you. Like, if you don't have that faith, whatever, that's on you. The thing I love about Peter and what I'm learning from Scripture, especially the book of Acts, that not only was there the pronouncement, there was the expectation. Peter said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And just so you know that I believe in what I just said, he takes him by the hand and he picks him up. Now do it. Amazing. It's one thing to say you have the faith to make the pronouncement. It's a whole other thing to take away the wheelchair. (laughs) Taking him by the hand. See, Peter understood what many times we do not. 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. 1 Corinthians 4.20, you need to memorize that verse. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of one of power. For the disciple of Christ, what we've done is we've jumped into the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not just a profession. It is a kingdom of power. Do you know every day I pray this over me and my family? That we will live with the experience of the power of the kingdom of God because that's who I'm, what I'm a citizen of? It's not a matter of talk. It's not a matter of speech. It's a matter of power. In the name of Jesus Christ, the risen one. And when we understand that power, like at what point, when Peter was interacting with this guy, at what point did Peter say, you know what, let's just stop and pray for a minute. At what point did he say, you know what, let's just pray and discern, is this God's will? How about if we just pray and say, God, if you're willing, would you heal him? But if not, give him the grace to live with this crippledness because your grace is sufficient for every, where was that prayer? Do you understand the authority with which Peter was moving into this man's life? Do you understand the authority with which he was moving in the context? Like he had, they had been given the Holy Spirit within, that salvation. They had just received the Holy Spirit upon. And now Peter was developing this sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's unction, the Holy Spirit's prompting. Obviously, the two previous times they walked by this guy, God hadn't chosen the timing yet. Though it was his will, he hadn't chosen the timing. And Peter was in tune so much with the Holy Spirit and moving at the, at the prompting of the Spirit that this was the time that he could discern because the Holy Spirit's, where God said, now's the time. And Peter didn't hesitate. He didn't ask questions. He just moved him with authority. And the name is just get up now. Let's go. It's amazing to me. And it seems so backwards to current churchness. And that's why I said, I don't, there's part of me that just thinks, I don't know about going through the book of Acts because what I see in the book of Acts is oftentimes just a little different than professional churchianity. And I think sometimes the church is very comfortable with professional churchianity and very uncomfortable with the indwelling and following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the living God within. And so with authority, get up and walk. And, and instantly, taking him by the hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Who wrote the book of Acts? Do you remember? Luke. Do you remember what Luke's profession was? He was a doctor. Don't miss this. Luke wasn't writing this as an eyewitness. Luke was writing this at the testimony of eyewitnesses. He was going back under the request of his his friend Theophilus, or maybe his master, Theophilus, and, and, and interviewing all these eyewitnesses. 
through the Gospel of Luke, through the book of Acts. So it's highly likely that Luke is actually interviewing this crippled man. Everybody knew who he was. He's actually interviewing this this formerly crippled man and writing down this story as part of his research into the eyewitnesses of these things. And so he's a doctor and he's interviewing this guy who used to be crippled and this guy's telling us his story. Now Luke understands what it is to, be, to, to, to have this congenitive disease where the legs never develop. There's no musculature in the hip, in the, in the butt, in the, the hamstrings, the, the quads, the calves, the, the, the ligaments, the tendons, the bone. None of it's been developed properly. And now Luke is sitting there as a doctor, and now he can examine this and say, oh my. And so the words he uses here, the Greek words he uses, we don't pick it up in English, but the Greek words he uses is a medical term to, to detail the sinews, the ligaments, the tendons, the bones, the intricate muscles. They're all completely healed. It's amazing. For me, it also tells me that before anybody claims a miracle, you ought to get it checked out. There's nothing wrong with saying, okay, I'm, I believe God did this. I'm going to go confirm it with some authority. That's in essence what Luke was doing. Completely healed. And he jumped up. On his feet and began to walk. He went within the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Here's what I know. The work of God in a life should be expressed in that life. The work of God in a life should be expressed in that life. Like, like, no longer does God say, I did this, don't tell anybody. He did that for a very short time, Jesus did, when he wanted to just wait until he presented himself to the public in his public ministry. But those times are over. No longer do you light a light and put it under a bushel and hide it. When God does something in your life, it's meant to be exposed and expressed. Not for anything that has to do with you, but for everything that has to do with him. Walking, jumping, and praising God. I wonder what that was like for him. He had never stood up before. I bet it was like, whoa, it is weird up here. Do you know what I'm saying? I, 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 just in my mind, I imagine him like this with his feet all the time. Like, I've, ne- I've never been able to do this. Can you imagine? Look at this. I've never been able to. We'd probably say, look, you're ADHD. Go get some meds. Like, calm down. You know, it's just like, he's just always like, oh, this is awesome. He's just so excited. Like, and this is what happens when you have the, an experience with God. How do you keep that quiet? When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the, the same man who used to uh, sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. When the man, uh, uh, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. I want you to notice some words here. When the people saw him walking and praising God, because you can't, when God steps in, you can't contain that. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate. Listen, in Christ, we are used to people. We're used to people. The Bible says that in Christ, the old has gone, the new has come. You're a used to person. There's a new creation. If you're in Christ, you are a used to person. And your now person ought to be very different than your used to person. And we have to consider how much of me is reflective of my used to rather than my now am. Do people know us still as who we used to be? Or do they see us now as the new creation that we become, leaping and jumping and praising God? If who we are to our huddle is still very similar to who we used to be, I have to wonder if we've had a real encounter with the living God. We used to be. Some of us are so concerned about what others may say or think about us that we're more comfortable living with the identity of our used to rather than our now am. 
The only reason God intervenes and does anything in our life, spiritually, physically, emotionally, in any way, is so that we will live as used to people and that people will see us as used to people. That's discipleship. When Peter saw this, all these people coming to him because they were amazed at this man. He said to them, fellow Israelites, why, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power and godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. He says, why do you look at us as if, as if this, this happened by us? This has nothing to do with us. And this is where the, like, the current of church culture has got it so wrong. Because there are plenty of people, when God does something, who would gladly take the credit for what God does. And Peter says, this has nothing to do with us. Why would you think it had anything to do with us? But he also says, I love this, he says, why are you surprised? Like, this is, this is what God does. Why does this surprise you? It's not insignificant that he starts this with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, those aren't just hollow words, and he's not just calling back to the Old Testament. He's saying that because these people had, were going to and coming from their prayers, right? The third time that day, their very prayer started with prayers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Peter is saying, listen, you should expect this from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You just got done praying to this God and you have no idea what this God's doing. You have no idea what this God is like. This is the heart of this God to whom you pray and your prayers are hollow because your words are hollow because you don't know his heart. And I just wonder how much of us do the same. We pray to the God of creation. The God, of, the God who loves us in Jesus' name with no expectation that he really does and, and, and surprised when he does. And Peter said, if you're going to use his name, you better understand his heart and he ought not surprise you. Why are you surprised? This is what the Father does. He says, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. This is such a paradox that Peter uses. He says, literally, you, you killed life, the life that created life. Like, how do you do that? He's using a paradox here to drive home the point. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. I love the fact that Peter does it. He doesn't let off the gas. He calls him on it. He said, you disowned him. You killed him. Peter's doing a thing that, that we were talking about on our staff. You ever heard of tough love? Well, the point is, let me, just, let me just rephrase that, reframe that for you. You ought not express tough love. You ought to express love tough. There's a difference. And Peter is loving tough. I love you and I'll be honest with you. You killed him. You disowned him. And we're witnesses of his resurrection. Look at what he says. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. When Peter says, by faith in the name of Jesus, it's a Greek word called pistis. And it literally means trust that creates action. It's just not faith that I believe Jesus died for my sins. It's this intellectual thing or this emotional thing. A better word for that, for our understanding, is trust. There's a trust there. And it's a trust that creates action. It propels activity. It's what James says, that faith without works is dead. There's a trust there. I remember when I was a little boy, and I don't know the reality of it. I just know the story in my head. 
If you ask my father, he might tell you the real story. I know the story in my head. And what's important is the story in my head, not reality. I remember being in about probably third grade, living in Visalia, and our, our, our house had a roof that kind of sloped down, and, and it, a little, it was unordinary how low it sloped to the ground. So it really wasn't that high. But I'm a little boy. It feels like I'm on the roof of my house. Do you know what I'm saying? My dad's below me. My dad's my hero, always has been. Uh, and, and I grew up with, with the understanding of my dad that my dad could do anything. There, there was no harm that could come to him. He was fearless and strong. And I think Superman, I think my dad. And so I'm on my roof. I'm like, Dad, I'm going to jump down and catch me. I didn't think a thing of it. Now, I'm sure I didn't jump and leap, you know, and kind of fell gently into my father's arms. Because I had no doubt. There was complete trust. And it wasn't a trust that said, I believe my dad can, where's the ladder? It was complete trust that I believe my dad can, so I'm going to fall right into his arms. No doubt. Do you understand? This is what Paul's saying. By faith, this trust that creates action, by faith, The thing that amazes me is, is what does he say? Where am I? You just don't know Jesus by faith. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this com- complete healing to him, as you can all see. It is in Jesus' name. So, so it doesn't just mean the name of Jesus. It means the full personhood and the authority and, the, 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 and, 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 and everything about who he is. And what he possesses. It's in that authority. And the faith that comes through him. So what Peter's saying is, the faith. Who had faith that this guy would be healed? Yeah, it wasn't the man, right? He's crippled. He, people walk by him all the time. He thought he was going to get something from the Bible. says he thought he was going to receive something from him. So it wasn't even the man's faith. It was the faith that came through Peter. But where did the faith come from? It wasn't Peter's faith. Jesus says, and the faith through him. It, the, the idea, here's the understanding. Like, it's the gifting of faith from God through the Son because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives the disciple faith to believe. It wasn't mustered up in himself. It was the faith of Christ gifted to them. Understand this. Even the faith I have is a gift from Jesus. It doesn't originate in me. If it originates in me, I get prideful and arrogant and self-righteous at my faith over your faith. And I become a prosperity preacher that downs you for your lack of faith Why God hasn't done anything well as I have faith so God does. It puts a focus on us and not on him. Even the faith we have doesn't originate in us. It originates in Christ. And the best thing we can do is pray for the gift of faith. You understand? I know what time it is. I'm four minutes over when we're supposed to be done with this whole thing, but I'm going to finish the chapter, all right? Look how this goes. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how our God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that this Messiah would suffer. He's saying, look, yeah, you killed him, you disowned him, you handed him over when he should have been let free. He was innocent. But I love the open door he leaves. It's because you're ignorant. He's echoing what Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. There's an element of guilt because they did it, but there's also this element of grace that says you're just, <laughs> can I say it? You're just stupid. When Isaiah says all of us like sheep have gone astray, it just There's just some ignorance about us. And this is what Peter's calling on. He said, but even in your ignorance, God, look, God used your ignorance for your salvation. God used your ignorance to show you the magnitude of his mercy and his grace. Without your ignorance, his grace doesn't mean anything. Paul says where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Where ignorance abounds, grace abounds more. He said he did this so that he could save you. 
Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and the times of refreshment may come from the Lord. Here's what we've got to understand. You know why this, you know why this was God's timing and not all those times before with Jesus? We've got to understand this. Wonder should always lead to witness. It, it was a benefit to this man to be healed, no doubt. And I don't want to downplay the suffering that, that he must have been living with at all. But there was a witness that had to happen. And any time that God does anything, it's not just for the benefit of the person for whom he does it. It's for a witness for the kingdom. And the witness that happened through this man's life is so much greater at this time than any other previous time that could have happened. And the witness is the word to repent. And it's the same witness that the Holy Spirit bears witness to today before me and you. Repent. Repent means to turn around and go the opposite way. Even those of us who are disciples of Christ get all twisted and turned around in this world. And we need to repent. Here's what happens in repentance. Forgiveness of sin. And did you catch it? That times of what? Re and ends with eshing. Refreshing. That times of refreshing will come. Here's what we got to understand. Repentance produces refreshment. Repentance reduces refreshment. Even for people, here's the thing. There's a lot of people in church like, well, I'm going to repent for I'm already a Christian. If, if that's where you are, that's what you need to repent of. You need to repent of thinking you got nothing to repent of. We need to keep ourselves in a constant state of repentance, not to our destruction or shame, but for, for, so that God's grace will fill in the gaps. To repent of our normality, to repent of our complacency, to repent of our lethargy, to repent of thinking we got nothing to repent of. And it's in that repentance that times of refreshing come. Because why? Because it's in that repentance where God's grace is profoundly felt. To live in this state, not of shame, but of repentance. The Bible says times are refreshing. Your religious, your religiosity gets dry and tiring. Yeah, repent that you've become religious. That's become duty bound and not relationship driven. And times of refreshing will come. Let me just wrap this up. When God, the very, very last verse, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. When Peter uses that word servant, he's hearkening back to what I believe is Psalm 42, no, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, and 52 and 53. That talks about the Messiah being the servant of God. So he's talking about Jesus here, the servant of God, prophetically the Messiah. Sent him first to bless you. How is he going to bless you? By turning you from your wicked ways and repentance. So that times of refreshing will come. I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. It starts with repentance, so times of refreshing will come. He's drawn us back to Jesus because the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. What the author of Hebrews is saying is Jesus is the end of the discussion. He, God has spoken once and for all for all things salvation. It is his son and his son alone. And so oh, this wonderful thing happened in God's perfect timing so that he would have the opportunity to pronounce to people he's drawing to himself repentance so that times of refreshing will come. He's doing the same thing this morning. He is doing wonderful things so he can draw us to himself and tell us to repent. Turn back. Come back. Because times of refreshing are the Father's heart for his kids that he loves. I want you to pray with me. If you've you've never repented of your sin, today is your day. 
All that means is agreeing with God about what sin is and turning around and going the other way. And so I would invite you in this moment. Say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I want to turn around and go the other way. I want you to lead the way, and so I repent of my sin. Forgive me. And I accept you. I proclaim that you are my leader now. You do that. You've just joined the kingdom of God. It's called salvation. And I invite you into it. However, I I think there's probably more here who have prayed that type of prayer long ago. But our lives have gotten so wrapped around the axle, so similar to culture and society, so worried about timing and plans, so stressed and fearful and doubtful, so distrusting that there's repentance that needs to come. Where you say, Father, forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my arrogance to think I know best. I'm sorry for my doubt in your sovereignty. I trust you again. I repent. I repent of how complacent I've become. I repent of my pride and arrogance to think that I know. I repent. And in repentance, I'm calling on you to give me times of refreshing right now. Refresh my spirit. Refresh my heart. Refresh my faith. I sit here incapable of any activity on my own. I pray it's your timing to move in my life. Until then, I'll wait. Father, I pray over us that you would, one, help us to be patient, to trust your timing, but you would also, God, convince us that your kingdom is not a matter of talk, it's a matter of power. We will wait I ask for the filling of your Holy Spirit and that we would walk in the power of your kingdom as people who are repentant. Love you, Jesus. Draw us into this relationship that we would love with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. We are yours, you are ours. We claim that boldly. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. And if you made some prayer decision, you got to tell somebody. I would love for you to tell us. On that card, on our app, stop at the Start Here booth. There's there's something you want prayer over. Stay put when we're all done. There's some people here who will stay put. And and if they're sitting down in these chairs, they'd love to pray with you. I know John's here, McElroy's here. There's a bunch of people. Listen, this week, read chapter 3 again with new, fresh eyes. And read chapter 4. So far, everything has gone great in the first church. How many of us know it don't stay great? Right? Right? Yeah. It's like, that Sunday wasn't bad. Oh, Monday, what the heck happened? Well, Monday's going to hit real quick here for them. So read chapter 4. Let's watch how the disciples went through the Mondays of life. Yeah? Let's sing.